there was this one couple that comes to mind. We were standing in an aisle and they're in the store. They're looking at their phone, Googling. There's no store associate helping them. This woman is like due in the next two weeks. She was ready to give birth. And I went up to them and I just said, what's the number one feeling you're having right now? They told me overwhelming. And I was like, that can't be. By the way, the reason I stopped you is because I'm doing research for a business I'm starting. So we were kind of shameless and continue to be shameless about asking for advice and talking to our customers every day. And that ultimately is what drives us. This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo. Start for free at klaviyo.com slash DTC. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash DTC. Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm Eric Dick, and today we are super lucky to be chatting with Michael Weeder, the co-founder, president, and CMO at Lalo, a baby and toddler products brand, making it easier for new parents to fill their lives with functional products that also look good and uh, and help their children. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Eric. Can you tell me a little bit about your brand's origin story? How did Lalo come to be? So... Uh, my co-founder, Greg, and I used to work together at a high-growth tech startup. He was the fourth employee. I was the fifth employee. He went on to be a VP of sales at another brand, and, and we were just catching up over dinner, and he said to me, look, my friends, my, my cousin, they're having babies, and I've seen them go through this stuff. Like, this is crazy. Like, they don't know what they're buying, how much it should cost. There's got to be an opportunity here to just do it better. And at that point, my wife and I had just started trying to have our first kid, and Right away, I was like, I'm in, let's do this. And from there, we, we surveyed parents just to understand a little bit more, just not, not taking our own observation on the surface and, and going and running, but validate it through the customer. And what we saw was the bar was so low in this industry. Um, brands weren't building true connections with their customers. Uh, they weren't really serving their needs uh, as people. What they were doing was creating products in a very utilitarian way. Uh, and not considering the rest of the relationship with their consumer. Um, and a lot of that was because it was being sold through traditional channels. And with that bar being so low, we knew that the opportunity was huge here. So, you know, we started out by building a brand and, a, you know, thinking about the experience that customers and parents really want to have with the brands they're shopping for, for their kids. Um, and from there, we kind of dove into the products we would make and leveling up the aesthetics, the function, uh, the safety, Everything that was important to parents, uh, we really considered in, in developing the brand and, and the products. There's so many legacy brands in the space. And having been you know, a father now for seven years, going into those situations where we're going to you know, make purchases, it's like, does this thing serve a basic function? You, know, you can just tell that they're legacy brands that, that have just been shipping to the same stores for years and years and years. And innovation, as you, as you found, that is absolutely rife. Uh, for for disruption, what was your first product that you went to market with? Yeah, so we launched um, a stroller first, and what we really quickly became known for was our high chair and these in the home products that make parents' homes, you know, look beautiful. Look, we don't solve the problem of messy kids, but if you're going to have that mess, it might as well be a beautiful mess without having the trade offs. So in this space, there are so many trade offs, whether it be around price or quality or the materials that are used. 
And we didn't believe that parents should have any trade-offs for their kids. Everybody wants the best for their child, right? But they don't want to spend an arm and a leg for it and make these hard decisions, especially when they, they don't even know maybe what they're buying, right? There's nothing else you buy in your life that you have no experience with before as an adult, right? So maybe, as my, as my co-founder likes to use this analogy, you know, maybe you've, you've cooked an omelet before, so you know what you want out of your pots and pans. So if you're served an ad for Caraway or one of these cookware brands, you kind of have an understanding of what you're looking for. For first-time parents, you're like, oh my God, what, like, what is this? How much is it supposed to cost? How is it supposed to work? Maybe you heard a thing from a friend, but you have no basis of comparison. So the amount that the brand needs to be there to support the customer during that buying process is elevated to the nth degree. It's also not every day that you can wake up and say, I want this thing, right? Or today's the day I'm going to pull the trigger and buy that new mattress. For us, like you have to be expecting a child or have a child already or be a grandparent or a gifter or someone that's, you know, in the world or the, the sphere of this baby being brought into um, the world and in order to be thinking about the purchase. So we just have all these different considerations that we need to consider when we were building Lalo and, and grow Lalo today. So you, you talked about your valid, you know, how you went about validating the idea ahead of time that you did validate it. That's obviously a critical uh, part of things. How did you actually execute on that? Was it a, was it a, a one-to-one sort of, uh, you know, question relationship? Did you launch a survey? How did you actually validate this market and these products? Yeah. So first and foremost, we sent out a survey that was first, right? Like what products, what brands, what experience, like what are your pain points that was done? And that was sent out, you know, we just like infiltrated Facebook groups of parents and sent it to friends to forward on to other groups of friends all over the country. We wanted to make sure we were like really well, had a really good sample size all over the country and not just like focused in New York where we're based. Um, so that was first and foremost. The second was we would go to these big box stores and these baby stores and literally stand in the aisles and wait for a, a couple to come up and like kind of harass them with questions in a nice way. I mean, there was this one couple that, that comes to mind and we were standing in an aisle, they're looking at their phone, they're in the store, they're looking at their phone Googling, there's no store associate helping them. And this woman is like, I don't know, she must be due in the next two weeks. She was ready, ready to give birth. And I went up to them and I just said, what's, what's the number one feeling you're having right now? And they told me overwhelming. And I, I was like, I can't be by, oh, by the way, the reason I stopped you is because I'm doing research for a business I'm starting. Um, so we were kind of shameless and continue to be shameless about asking for advice and feedback um, and talking to our customers every day. And that ultimately, you know, to this day is what, what drives us. So you came into those surveys and those conversations with an idea that you were trying to validate. And I assume you did so because your, your product line has launched from there. So what were the things that you were hearing from people? They like just, just confirming your ideas that, that this was an overwhelming time for people, that there was not a, um, that not enough support, not enough understanding, not enough education about all this stuff. Like what did you actually walk away with from the validation survey? And were there some things that surprised you that you kind of didn't know going into that research phase? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great question. I think first and foremost, the overwhelming piece, the shopping experience piece, it was abundantly clear that it's antiquated. There's nothing else you shop for that follows this system. There's also some things that uh, we learned, and I think this maybe goes to your point about what was surprising was like the dominance of baby registries and the importance and the experience. And that, you know, from a D2C perspective, that's not a normal way to market or track sales or think about attribution 
when your customer is not the purchaser or your user is not the buyer sometimes. So the person who puts the product on the registry and says, I want this thing for my child, isn't the person who actually swipes their credit card a lot of the time. So that was an eye opener for us in terms of like how we need to market, how we need to, you know, step in there. And then the last thing that I, I would say was a huge learning was about what's the sphere of influence within the consumer's journey. So how are they finding out about products? Where do they start and how do they get to the ultimate buying decision? And how much is influenced, not necessarily online or through advertising, sure that plays a role, but people's networks and friends and family are the number one factor in driving these decisions. And I think a lot of that right now, there's been a lot of articles published recently about the power of referral and you know how to think about CAC differently and LTV. And, and that's kind of always been true in baby. That's like the most important thing. And unlocking that, that inflection point early was critical to, to our success to date and will be critical to our growth in the future. What did you do with that information? Because as far as I understand it, registries are often, you know, big, big department stores. It's funny you bring up department stores. I remember buying a stroller in a department store and having to flag people down and they didn't know anything about the products. And it really was an antiquated, poor experience. So that really resonates with me. But I'm sort of wondering, like, how did you overcome the gift registry? Could you just, do you just build gift registry into your marketing approach? Or I'm I'm kind of missing the piece. How do you actually overcome that when it's mostly these big department stores that, that have these registries? Yeah, I think it, it had us rethinking our channel strategy. So how quickly we would expand beyond just you know D to C and, and how do we think about that? So we formed a great partnership and relationship with a company called Babylist, which is the fastest growing baby registry. Um, they're all online. Last year, one in two new parents created their registry on Babylist. So that partnership is really deep and, and strong for us um, and allowed us to capitalize on that market and not miss that market because... Ultimately, if you're not where your customers are and where they're buying and want to buy, you're missing a whole segment. You've lowered your TAM and you don't want to do that if you want to grow your business. One of the things, you know, that was good about my department store experience is that I could go in there, I could touch it, I could feel the experience, I could see the size of it, I could imagine what it might look like in my space. How is that something as a D2C first company, how have you sort of hacked that experience to be able to give people that ability to touch and, and experience your products? Yeah, that was critical from day one. So we knew that that was going to be a big part of how we needed to rethink this experience. Um, so right at launch, we had something called the Lala Loft. It was a fourth floor, uh, looked like a beautiful apartment in Soho in New York. Um, and it was a place where customers can come and make one-on-one appointments and meet with members of our team. At the beginning, it was most of the time you were meeting with uh, my co-founder or me a lot of the time and getting that really, really personal experience and 50% of the people who made appointments converted into purchasers because of that level of service. So that space served not only as a showroom or you know a store in, a, in effect, but it was a community space. We had events and classes for parents and babies, and it was an unbelievable experience. Our office was also in the back, which was really helpful. And we shut that down with COVID. Obviously, there was no, no demand for people to be coming in over the last you know, 12 plus months, but we're thinking about always like how do you know what does that start to look like coming out of the pandemic on the other side you know it's been core to our vision and you know i think there will be some exciting things that we do in the future 
we touched on this a little bit where you you know you started with with strollers and and high chairs and have sort of really branched out in the you know in the wonderful world of baby there's so many different areas that you can kind of uh fill in there i wanted to ask like what was that how's your hit rate in terms of like launching new products into this audience have have all of the products you've launched become a big hit and a big part of you know someone's average order value essentially like how did you how did you think about expanding your product line in a way that guaranteed yeah that you'd have the most hits yeah, all of our products have been successful to date. Um, as we've really focused our efforts, it's very clear what our customers want from us, and it's focused on in the home. So that's where we put the primary amount of our energy and capital uh, and effort. Um, our hit rate's been phenomenal. And the way we really think about it is there are basically these galaxies that we want to create, and there's hero products and there's accessories um, around those or you know attachment products. And, you know, we see as we launch those attachments to the heroes, they sell really well and they increase AOV, they increase LTV. So we'll continue to dive into that strategy um, as we ex- expand our product line. I think that there's, there's so much opportunity. The last time we did a, a large customer survey, there were over 91 individual types of products that customers wanted us to make. And obviously, you know, we have our work cut out to get to that, you know, cross all those off the list. You mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, the sphere of influence in these parents' lives. And I think back again to mine and and literally it was like we got a specific kind of stroller that I think my wife had seen one of her friends had that looked good and was functional, but also it was sleek. And the decision making process was interesting. How have you sort of hacked influence in those spheres? Like, I guess there's a couple prongs with how you think about influencer marketing. Can you talk about those? So first and foremost, before we talk about influencers, uh, influencer marketing, our customers are obviously our most important influencer and the, you know, tapping into their networks is the most important. So we try to show up for our customers in the way br- other brands won't. Um, that can mean one, a member of our team taking the path train to Hoboken to, to help a customer understand how to use a product because you know, all these products have learning curves because it's new to you. Or a product that came damaged in shipping and I took a drive and replaced, you know, brought them the replacement delivery myself. I actually happened to total my car on the way and get in an Uber to finish the delivery. But it's little things like that that are memorable. Um, I'll never forget, obviously, because I told my car. But um, but they'll never forget because we we took the extra step to make them feel special, or you know, little gifts that surprise and delight gifts that we we send, and we don't just send like a piece of branded swag. We learn about the customer and send them something personal to their life. But influencers themselves, like influencer marketing at this day and age, everybody feels like your friend on the internet, right? And influencers can play a big role in the way uh, we market our products, the way they show up every day in people's lives as they're in their consideration set. And for us, that was about really building strong, deep connections with influencers so they felt like friends of the brand and not people that were a marketing channel. Um, you know, we really th- want to think of influencers every day as people, not marketing channels. And it's worked for you because you've managed to work with some huge, huge influencers. I got Jessica Alba here, Chloe Kardashian, Shay Mitchell, and this is without having paid them up front in, in big deals. Like how, how did you how did you work pull this off? So first and foremost, you know, having people love our brand and our product is huge. Um, you know, some of the people, some that you mentioned, some you didn't are paying customers. They buy our products. That's always nice when you see a celebrity's name pop up, but for us, you know, we don't approach it in a way that we just want to like gift them product or we want to pay them to do something specific. 
we know they have a need, which is a product that they want. We know that our product will resonate from an aesthetic sensibility with them. And we start off by building a relationship. We almost let them shop our site versus telling them we're going to send them something. And then, you know, little things, and this is, you know, definitely the, the celebrities and mega influencers to your micro influencers is, you know, we have a great member on our team who's interacting with them day by day, checking in, seeing how they're doing, DMing them, you know, wishing them a happy birthday, whatever it is, you know, so in those moments, just like you'd be with a friend, you're showing up in their lives. So you're top of mind when you launch a new product or when they use the product, they'll share it and tag you. And that was really like phase one of our, our influencer program was building those deep relationships and then seeing who drove traffic, you know, and without UTM codes, without anything like too rigid, um, it's really, really just like being a little bit more go with the flow. And in that case, would you try to stagger them in ways where you'd see their impacts one by one? Were you catching, you were hoping to catch them on exit surveys in terms of like, you know, where they heard about this? How did you actually capture that data in that way? So first and foremost, just like tracking your traffic spikes and like building that correlation. Um, it's pretty clear when someone drives traffic, like what you see when an influencer posts, like you'll see, you know, your organic social traffic spike, you'll see your direct traffic spike and you'll see your search traffic spike always like it's it's pretty foolproof and then of course like post-purchase surveys are a good follow-up to that right because you don't know at what point it drove to their influence really took hold was it like their first post their last post like how close to purchase was it so you know we've we've used post-purchase surveys to really you know kind of figure out how people are being influenced and by who I like your title, co-founder, president, CMO. Uh, you're, you're, you're wearing multiple hats in, in the business. I'm curious, this is something I'm just, I'm always interested in, in how your executive suite sort of shakes out. It's, it's, it's you and another co-founder. Is your other co-founder the CEO? Correct, yeah. And how do you break up the duties there? Like, this is probably a newbie question. I should probably know this. But what, like, in this case, what's the difference between a president and a CEO? Yeah, so there are some governance things that are specific and um to a ceo title versus a president title there are also for us how we divide our responsibilities it's very cut and dry despite the level of collaboration we have so from day one we wrote down on a piece of paper this is now a google sheet but it was on a piece of paper at one point what i'm responsible for and what he's responsible for and this doesn't mean that, that I work on these things alone and he works on these things alone. We collaborate on a lot. But what it meant was it defined who the final decision maker was. So if we're in it and we're not agreeing on something, which every co-founder relationship is going to have moments where you don't agree, um, we kind of know where, where the buck stops um, and who has final say. And that's really important, right? It stops like actual serious fights. Um, and keeps us grounded and self-aware of like where each other's strengths are. So like when we created that list, we thought hard about what am I good at and what is he good at? So what falls in my camp is a lot of the public facing stuff. So a lot of like the brand, marketing, creative, physical product, digital tech, all of that falls on my side. On his side is a lot of, a lot of the back of house stuff, um, CX, operations, logistics, finance, legal, and fundraising. So as the CEO, he takes on the fundraising investor relations piece as well. So in your role as CMO, can you describe the marketing team that you've kind of built out and, and what's been your biggest win on, on the marketing side so far? Yeah, our team is super lean still and growing. So for those looking for jobs, definitely peek back soon. Um, we'll be posting more roles. Our next role on the marketing team will be a retention 
and CRM role. So for all you people in that world, please apply. Um, but our team today, we have a head of growth and uh, a supporting uh, marketing manager underneath him. We have a director of brand um, who works very closely with me. And that's our marketing team in-house today. Um, we handle all media buying in-house, all influencer marketing in-house. We work with external people on creative and things like that. But we're super lean, super nimble team and like it that way. What we've done traditionally as we've scaled is we've, we've worked with people in freelance capacities that have joined full-time as well. So like, I, I think as entrepreneurs and founders are starting companies, you don't have unlimited resources and capital. You also don't have as many needs at the beginning. Um, you may feel like you do, but like as your business scales, your problems get bigger, your, the scale becomes bigger, you have to do more. And you have more money to play with hopefully too. So like the way you can go out and, and grow is different. So being able to start people freelance and get the job done that needed to get done was really important to us and then scale them into full-time roles as the business case was there to have a full-time employee. Now you've built such a, like a strong organic base of this business with your following, with your, in, you know, your, your core influencers, with your, you know, the way that you're, you're turning your customers into influencers. All of these things are so essential for a successful D2C business. But in, in terms of the ad side of things, like what, what have been your biggest wins on, on the advertising side in terms of, in terms of paid traffic? Yeah. So I think our business is really different. We've always, you know, I, it's funny because I, I look at a lot of what people are writing about now in terms of ways to think about iOS 14 and 15 and like how to like do attribution and think about things. And I'm in a big, I'm in a, a little Slack group of D2C founders that talk about this stuff all the time. And a lot of the things people are like switching to or talking about now are things we've done from the start in terms of looking at things in a blended basis and thinking about our, our marketing and our paid media spend a little bit more holistically because of those spheres of influence, because of the buying behavior in our category, the way registry goes, we can't close the loop on every purchase, right? So someone we hit with an ad, we don't know if they necessarily convert, like Facebook and Google might not mark that person as a conversion because someone else came in, maybe the grandma, and bought the high chair for the family as a gift. And how do we mark that conversion? How do we think about attribution? So looking at things on a blended basis has been really helpful. I think the way we iterate on content, the way we leverage, um, you know, UGC, especially over the pandemic when it was a little harder to shoot creative was really good. And that just happened naturally. Our customers were posting amazing pictures. Like when you have a beautiful product, people want to post on Instagram. We're also there for every milestone, right? So, so many memories happen with our products, whether it's your first bite, your first ice cream cone, your first birthday, cake smash, those big moments happen with our products and we want to celebrate alongside that. And that turns into great content for us to leverage. We've also seen falling CACs of, as other brands have seen rising CAC, um, especially over the last two months. So I think that's a testament to our team, the hard work and how we think about our approach as writing playbooks and not following them. Yeah. And just the content that you're using. I think that's such a smart pivot during that time where people can't, that's the whole point of UGC, right? Is when you can't experience things directly, you know, you pick a customer avatar of someone who, you know, you look up to and then watch them experience the product. And, and that's how people get it by proxy. Right. Yeah. You've also recently uh, spun out this. I love this approach. We're talking on a podcast. I love the name of your podcast. Uh, dad pod. Is that a, is that a joke? Is that a take on dad bod? Uh, <laughs> For sure. It's great. Can you talk a little bit about becoming a media company and, and where you see that developing over the, the next few years? Yeah, we definitely don't see ourselves as a media company, but we've, Greg and I are sitting here as new dads with 
our own experiences. And there's a lot out there from the mom's perspective. And we wanted to put a male perspective on uh, the work-life balance, on our experiences as dads, and talk to other great people too. What we always set out to do as a brand is to be there for our customers and support them in their, their journey through parenthood. So this is an extension of that. Um, we closed out season one. Um, there are some amazing guests that we had in season one, and we're, we're planning out season two. What kind of guests, just to give me background here, like what kind of guests on the dad pod? Yeah, incredible entrepreneurs and, and individuals, including um, Will Jadara, who's the founder, one of the founders of Eleven Madison Park and Make It Nice Hospitality. Carl Rivera, who's the VP of shop at Shopify, VP of product for shop. Um, we had Golden Tate, Super Bowl champion, TJ Mizell, who's a DJ producer and the son of Jam Master Jay from Run DMC. And all dads. They're- all dads, all new dads. So every single person on the podcast had a child under one. Different stories, different backgrounds, different upbringings. We had Jelani Memory, who's the founder of A Kid's Book About, another D2C brand. You know, super interesting story and his own upbringing, his own, you know, mixed race family step, you know, he has six kids. I mean, it's incredible stories. And just to hear other perspectives um, and have a diverse group of individuals that we can we can learn from and and chat with was a really good experience. So even if we never filmed, uh, recorded an episode again, there were some great connections and conversations that we had in, in season one become better business and better dad you know you pick up dadding tips here and there all of it's, it it's yeah there for, for those that listen there yeah there's certainly entrepreneurial tips there's fatherhood tips there's life tips um and it's fun and you know just like super conversational and laid back do you think you have moms listening it's just like like spying in on 100 they you'd have to too because moms are probably going to be the the biggest purchasers of your products yeah, I, I have to look at the. I think there's actually more moms that listen to it than dads, and my gut is that they go home and then that's conversation at the dinner table of something they heard. And I think most people are are finding out about it through their for their partner, or their wife. I love it. It's a public service then, just to get that that dad voice out there. So one of the things we talk, we talk a lot about ways, uh, you know, just to improve customer experience. One of the things we do with a lot of our clients on the agency side is, we, you know, we make sure that whenever there's stock issues, you know, you've got that ability to pre-order. You've got ability to buy something when the time is right for you specifically, whether you're pre-ordering or whether you're back ordering or something. You guys came up with a special ability for people to shop now and ship later. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that? Was that from customer feedback as well that was like, hey, I'm going to have a kid in six months you know can you guys remind me to to sell me this in six months or something can you talk about how that came about yeah yeah we launched this at the beginning it's actually it's not live right now we're we're rebuilding the experience and thinking about how to build it back based on customer feedback but what it started as we knew that our all of our products weren't needed from day one so for example a high chair you don't use when your kid is born you use it earliest four months maybe five or six and parents don't have enough new stuff laying around they don't need more clutter so we wanted to make sure they got it when they needed it. And when we built it originally, we actually built a smart, like some logic into it. So you put in your kid's due date and we recommended when you should ship it. And there are obviously benefits to our business to do that. And there are disadvantages to our business where it created a lot of complexity. But we think a lot about the experience, customer experience, not just as when they're on our site, but it's all the way through the shipment, the unboxing, the setup and the use of the product. So if we can think about customer experience across that entire journey, um, there's a lot of different ways we can innovate and create competitive advantages for our brand. 
One of the, the quotes I have here from you was about uh, the strength of a founder can be defined by how good they are at letting go. And this is something that really resonates with me. Uh, you know, I've built out this content team now that does, a, you know, most of the newsletter stuff, most of the podcast research. Um, and there's been a lot of stuff that I've had to let go of as a founder. Some of the stuff I enjoyed doing, but it just didn't serve the business. Can you talk a little bit about why letting go can help make someone a better founder? Yeah, it's about bringing different perspectives into your business, um, right? As founders, your business is your baby and you want to see it grow and you want to nurture it. But the best way to nurture it is to have different influence on its growth. And, you know, having one single perspective will keep you in a really straight and narrow lane that will limit and hinder your growth as a business, as an individual, letting other people, you know, share their voice and take ownership over things ultimately will level up your ability as a founder to think about new challenges and new ways to grow the business and will allow other people to put their stamp and their influence on the brand um, and the growth. Also letting go of just these responsibles, but also letting go of things like when things don't go your way. I, I sometimes say that being an entrepreneur is like uh, staring into the abyss and chewing glass. Uh, which it can feel like that sometimes. And so when you go, it's amazing the way a lost contract or something can really weigh on you personally. So letting go of that is something else that's key, eh? Totally. Yeah. There's a little double entendre in there um, for sure. And as a founder, there's a lot of difficult times, right? Like it's not all, you know, glorious, you know, rainbows and unicorns kind of. Sometimes you work. total your car. Right. Sometimes you total your car <laughs> bringing a, a table to a customer. Um, but you can't let yourself be foggy or, or get bogged down by by some of these things that aren't your wins. But like, I think it's also important to process those and understand why things didn't work out too. So it powers the future. Um, but there's just not time. There's not time to like dwell on, on the thing that went wrong. Um, and there's also, you know, you also have to just like give up the responsibilities too, because there are certainly people that are better at all of us. Cause as a founder, you end up becoming a generalist, right? And there are certainly specialists that are better at doing the, the specific tasks that one day you were doing. And it's about finding those better individuals to, you know, cause your team is what, what will make your, your company explode. As a, as a father for seven years now, I can tell you that let it go is a song that I've listened to a thousand times. I don't know if you're <laughs> just a year in, I don't know if you've been exposed to frozen yet, but you will. Not, not yet. I will be. I'm sure. Um, on the dad pod, we talk a lot about, musical choices and the way your music taste changes as you become a parent or maybe your taste doesn't change, but the music you consume changes for sure there's no avoiding it i went and saw boss baby the other day in the movie theater and it was the first time back in the movie theater in a while and i've just realized that me going to those kids movies in theaters is just a great way for me to get a small nap yeah exactly that's, that's really what's happened so if you if you need me on the dad pod i'll i'll, I'll come on yeah um you touched on it a little bit earlier. Your co-founder is the one sort of focused on on VC funding. Can you talk a little bit about Lalo's uh, you know journey when it comes to funding and and what your company's position has been on on VC funding versus bootstrapping? Yeah, I mean we have a lot of amazing relationships um, with investors out there. At the end of the day, we've been really focused on making sure that Greg and I are in the right position to make the decisions as a business. We've not gone the traditional VC route for a handful of reasons, but there are some fantastic investors out there that are changing their stance on consumer, on D2C. And a lot of the players from a VC standpoint that were the original investors in D2C are like completely out. And they, they were looking at it probably from the wrong angle, quite frankly. You know, back in the day, a lot of these companies started under the guise of being a tech company. DC was tech, and you know, over time, people 
saw all these stories unfold with different companies and really saw, you know, what, what drives a DTC company, the economics, um, the fundamentals and financial, um, strength of the business are, are really important and different than running a tech company. You know, cash flow management is that much more important. And so we've really tried to find strategic investors that align with our perspectives on how to raise capital, how to grow a company, how to scale. Um, and we've found some incredible people that are on our cap table that um, we learn from all the time. I think that's an interesting point about the sort of changing of the guard of that those early D 2 C VCs and sort of this new class that's coming out. Like, what are some of the key differences there between the old money there and and these new people that you're more interested in working with? Yeah, I mean, when cash flow management is so important in an inventory based business, like the old guard, you know, you know, having come from tech, right? Like the speed at which you can move and the speed at which you can grow are very different in tech. I mean, you can iterate on a product overnight in tech. You can't in physical product. And forcing that growth isn't necessarily healthy for a business that needs to make sure their products are safe and functioning and getting to customers on time. And you have a scaling operation in a warehouse. And you know, there's there's a lot more that goes into it. It's not just about you know investing more in AWS or like growing your your tech stack, like that's and your engineering team. So putting those the strain of tech growth on a D2C business is most times, I'd say nine times out of 10, not healthy. So there are certainly been some investors recently, um, some of ours that um, understand that, look at it from a, a different perspective that revolves around cash flow management, you know, profitability, sustained growth, and ultimately, you know, solving consumer need versus hyper growth focused on you know, tech multiples and exits, which, you know, with, with ad spend, it can give you that illusion of just like, I'm going to pump in a hundred grand and we're going to see this growth. Whereas you guys have sort of had this, uh, this much more holistic approach since before it was even cool. (laughs) I like to think so. So good on you for that. That's, uh, that's awesome. I wanted you mentioned that you're in a a D2C founders group. First of all, make sure to plug direct to consumer.co, make sure every one of those founders is subscribed to, to our newsletter. Uh, Can you talk about some other D2C brands that you, that you're a fan of and, and what they're doing? Yeah. Um, Nike, uh, number one, like, I think, I think they're the most overlooked D2C brand and probably the one all of us should be looking to for, um, inspiration. I think they do a phenomenal job. And that's been a massive shift for them. I read an article just recently, like, I think it's just been in the past couple of years that they've like heavily shifted that business to D2C. Totally. And they, they blow by all their projections every time they make them. I think that, you know, in, in terms of other brands that we've been fond of or following track at Caraway, um, we're good friends with their team and we think they do a phenomenal job in the cookware space, especially in a space that was super crowded. And, you know, at the time they launched, there were a few other brands launching at the same time. And I think if you were to look at them against some of the competition that was launching same time, you probably would have said no chance. But when, if you really understand the DNA of their team and how they think about it, they're they have a lot of competitive advantages internally that allow them to win. What would you say is your favorite part of your marketing tech stack? Marketing tech stack. Oof. Figma. I don't know if that would count there, but like, I just love being able to jump in and design and you know build a design system, be able to work nimbly. Like every member of my team knows how to use Figma, and they're not. None of them are designers in house. And we can move pieces around, mock up a landing page, mock up, you know, design an email, get some ads mocked up in no time and collaborate really well. I think that, you know, Figma's added a ton of efficiency that it's not really part of our 
purely part of our tech stack, but I guess it enables a lot of it. With a company that has so much focus on creative, obviously, right? Like a creative is a huge part of, of your marketing push. So it seems like it enables that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, we, we've been big fans of Paloma um, since the beginning. And, you know, we did a case study with them. You know, they were, uh, you know, big part of us, like, you know, being believers in conversational commerce and connecting with our customer early even from the first touch point. So we, you know, we're big believers in that platform, you know, outside of that, I, you know, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of un- power to be unlocked uh, within Clavio. And I think within SMS too, we're big fans of PostScript. So. Well, I love, I love that you mentioned Clavio. They're coming on as a, as a H2 partner of D2C. It's interesting. They're sort of like the standard in a lot of ways. And, and I'm really excited for the ways that they're going to be innovating into that conversational content, into that, you know, even into the more, you know, user management type systems that they're kind of coming up against. They, they just started with such a functional product for e-commerce. And I'm really excited for the way that they can expand out of that. Totally. Yeah. When we, when we started the business, that was when MailChimp and Shopify had a divorce. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so we, uh, the decision was kind of made for us. Um, and we, you know, it's been a great tool for our team to use. Definitely a good decision for Clavio that uh, MailChimp made back then. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Okay, here's our other standard stock question is if, if we were to, you know, we're Canadian, or the Canadian government loves giving out money. If we were to give uh, Lalo a, a 50k grant uh, that you don't have to pay back that you can put into any aspect of your marketing funnel currently, where would you put that 50k dollars to see the biggest return? Uh, that's a really tough question. I'd probably, I'd probably use it to hire someone, you know, put it towards someone's salary, obviously it wouldn't get me a full person. But I think that, you know, you, you can unlock so much by hiring the right people. And I, I think that's the first place I'd look. The second place I'd look at what I, we're big believers in testing new channels. Um, so I'd think about, you know, we like to always put a, a portion of our budget every month aside to testing something that new. And if that thing works, it you know becomes part of the mix. So maybe something that new. Have you tried TikTok yet? I'm a recent personal convert to TikTok. And so I'm always interested. Very light testing. Very, very light testing. Personally, I'm addicted, but from a marketing perspective and ad spend perspective, we've just done some light tests. Um, And it's been, you know, decent for driving traffic. I think that that, we we were doing some tests on our just uh, lead generation front, just for people that are interested in learning more about businesses and e-commerce and all that. And and it's gone really well. And I think uh, Instagram's announcement this past week of just that they're basically deprecating themselves as a photo platform and are totally sort of capitulating to the TikTok model of live video. I just feel like the shift of budgets into TikTok is is going to be a big thing in the ne- in the next year. Yeah. Now I think there're going to be a lot more brands testing it and and seeing how, what they can make of it. And so many cool baby creators, not not baby creators, but creators that are in that baby space. Yeah. The fastest growing audience is is moms on TikTok. I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I think uh, a lot of great information for, for anyone in, in this niche or for anyone even just, yeah, thinking about building a business holistically. I think there's been a lot of great insight here. So thanks for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you, I see you're pretty active on Twitter. Is that maybe where you'd suggest people reaching out? Yeah, Twitter is great. Just at mweeder, M-W-I-E-D-E-R. Shoot me a tweet, pop in my DMs, whatever you need to do. Happy to chat. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.